Hey friends, before we get the show started and begin the new year of Is This Just Fantasy, it just must be said that Duncan had a couple of issues at the start of this episode using his new microphone. He still had some things to work out. Um, and it doesn't sound amazing. We figured it out halfway through and fixed it, so you have that to look forward to, but the first 35 minutes, bear with, it sounds amazing later. Uh, enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to Is This Just Fantasy 2023 edition. I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm Duncan Nicholl, or as Susanna Clark would refer to me as, the other podcaster. Oh, very nice, Duncan. Yes, I I don't quite think we are, um, I hope we're not getting towards the vicious rival stage of our strange and narrow relationship. Oh no, it's coming, but we're definitely uh, on the Yeah, it's coming. It. It's really the great podcasting split of what, 2026? Oh, mate, you're optimistic. I was going to put it down to 2024, but yes... Oh wow! Still out the there schism the is coming. Mm-hmm. I wonder what books. I wonder what book would be the one to like drive us apart. To be like, we can no longer have a fruitful partnership. You know, I would have to be. I think something that one of us completely loved, like the most cherished, like nostalgic childhood book that they served up mm-hmm. to the other one to get ripped apart. Sure, and then the other one had yeah, eviscerated. They hate it. I don't think we're going to do that because I've already given you a fair few ones which I really love and you've been on board so far. To be honest, unless you suddenly come out and say that you hate The Hobbit, I think we're safe. I mean, we haven't hit any, like, Sanderson yet or Hob and I feel like some of those, if I really didn't like them, then you could get properly mad at me. It depends what side of the fence you sit with Hob. I don't know where in the fence is. All I know is that there's a boy called Fritz and bad things happen to him and he's sad. Oh, so you fed them all. Oh, cool. I think his name's Fitz. Is it Fitz, Fritz or Fritz? Fritz. Okay. Fritz. Fritz. I might be wrong. Cool. Apologies if I am. Oh, I do Isn't his name Fitz Chivalry? Fitz Chivalry? Yes, you're right. Because it's, uh, it's like the bastard name in that universe. Instead of like Game of Thrones where it's your name and then snow or sand. It's like Fitz and then... The father's name? I think that's how it works. Oh, God, I'm so interested. I haven't read those books in many, many a year. Mm, oh, mm. But and it's been many and many a week since we've done a podcast, hasn't it, Duncan? We have. We have had our first ever season break. Uh, we took a mm-hmm. bit of extra time. It's been a month since we hosted a podcast for all of you guys. And we kind of did that because we had a really big book we wanted to do. That's true. It wasn't just us taking some time off. Oh no, this is, it's a hefty fella. Jordy, you picked this book, as is the way. We I... alternate on a normal uh, bi-weekly schedule. We each pick a different book, and this pick was yours, so why don't you introduce it? Hmm. The book we're discussing is Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, it's a, as we said, it's a lengthy fella. I think it's 850 pages long. Um... Set in Regency-era England, it's a sort of, um, what do you call it? When What do you call it when it's like the past, but it's changed? Like it's an alternative history, yeah, an alternative history. It's an alternative history fantasy novel about magicians in Regency England and a return of English magic. I just want to throw it there, like right now. Uh, throughout this book club, I may call it Just Strange or Noel. Or I might just call it Jonathan oh, Strange. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the name of this episode file is Strange and Norrell. <laughs> I 
I think that about sums up rather nicely. It has, we have a good sort of Napoleonic war, but mm. I wouldn't call it that's the setting. That is merely a feature. Yeah, it's a substantial... Hey, well, hey, no, it's significant, but it's not substantial. Like, the book is so long that both Napoleonic wars, like, the first one and the, like, unsuccessful uh, sequel, both are pretty minor features, ultimately. Like, they don't take up a lot of page counts. Okay, so we're just going to grab onto that. Just like, so, uh, Waterloo, you're calling the unsuccessful sequel... That's a Napoleon uh, yeah. child. Listen, we didn't even need to, like, have a Trafalgar, you know? Like, he came back and it was, like, what, two years? And then he was back on a different island. I mean, I learned all of my Napoleonic history through reading Bernard Cornwell Sharp's books, so. And I learned all of my Napoleonic history through reading it uh, in The Count of Monte Cristo. So I, I know very little about Napoleonic Wars. It's a huge blind spot. You probably don't even know my, uh, my history where knowledge. the alternative history comes into it. Were you reading this? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the magician did that. Of course. As it happened. It was weird to not really know who any of the, um, the prime ministers and politicians were. Like... I know that a bunch of them are real, probably most of them, in fact. But I was like, is Paul real? Like, is is Lord Paul, is he real? I actually don't know. Do you want to? Nah. I don't think it would impact your enjoyment. Ah, but talking of enjoyment, so, Jordy, mm. this was a reread for you. That's right, I've read it before. And you like it? I love it. I love this book. Uh, for me, this is a really phenomenal book. It's um, it 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 succeeds in spite of everything we've said about how how lengthy it is and how lengthy it is and how slow it is. Um, it's a wonderful read. It is um, it's like a long, hot bath, comforting, slow. It takes its time, and you get out of it feeling refreshed. All right. How did you feel, Duncan? So this was the first timer for me, but. Mm-hmm. Strange, you know, it's been on my read list for a long time. A long, long time. Mm-hmm. It's been on my shelf for uh, maybe even longer. And, oh gosh, how do I get this over, done with? Got rid, of the, got rid of that plaster. Okay, I liked this book when I finished it. But I went on a journey, fluctuating that sine wave of like and dislike throughout the entire I time I've read it. Um, and mm, I think one thing you, mm. you say, oh, this is a long book. Yeah, it is a long book. But long books, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. I love long books. We're fantasy readers. Yeah. Wheel of Time. Oh, freaking Brandon Sanderson's work. Lord of the Rings itself is a thick boy. Mm. But <laughs> pacing. Pacing is key in a long story. And what Strange and Old yes. does, and this is the biggest negative, and I just want to get it out there straight away. It starts slow, and I think that is my biggest issue, because for the first 200 pages, if it wasn't for Book Club, I would have put it down. And I don't think that should be completely on me as a reader. That is something that I think Susanna Clark should have thought about and been aware of, that you could have had a bit more happening in the early stages um, obviously, this yeah. book was a success regardless, so it wasn't that bad, and lots of people have read it. But I think that some of the whole character introductions, things could just be a little bit reworked in that sort of first quarter of the book to have made Speaking it a more Speaking as experience. someone on the reread, 
I was really surprised by how quickly the uh, the, the first quarter of the book flashed by. Okay, well... <laughs> Looking back to where I was, in your shoes, reading it through, I remember the feeling of being like, wow, this really is taking its time. To break it down a little bit, the opening of a book neither introduces us to um, Jonathan Strange or Mr. Norrell, Gilbert Norrell. Um, it starts off with the Society of Yorkshire Magicians, and... I can definitely understand why this might seem interminable. It's several chapters before you even meet either of the main characters, and instead you're introduced to them through a character called uh, Segundus. And it's his perspective on the magician, Gilbert Norrell, and his magic, which introduces us to the theme and the tone of magic in this book. That's much more important to Susanna Clarke than introducing us to the main characters straight away. I can see how, especially on a reread, that would come across better. Because you know what the direction is, and you know what the intent is. Um, one thing that I particularly kind of picked up on, and I was saying to everyone, who many people saw me reading this book, and comment upon mm-hmm. it and ask for my opinion. Say many. About three. Um, but one thing that I said when in the early goings was that I, I was like, oh, like it's enjoyable, like the way it's written, I enjoy its prose, but gosh, like Susanna Clarke, she keeps bringing in elements that just seem superfluous. Like, why, is, why are we getting a paragraph like on what? this? Why am I finding out all about like this what? person's backstory? Um, okay. I generally did not understand why we had to find out so much about um, Miss... Uh, I can't remember her maiden name, but Emma Poole. Sure. I, about her backstory, about her time, about why she married her husband, about her family situation. I was like, why are we getting this? What, what's the Isn't relevance of these characters? because she's like an enormously important of... character to the book? Ah. Uh, more than that, though, what's the relevance? What's the relevance of this backstory? Like, why do I need to know exactly where this character has come from? Because she's one of the stage? most important characters in and, the book. Yes, but it's also it's about learning about how that backstory informs her character and her personality further down the line than mm-hmm. it necessarily does at the very beginning. And that's not immediately obvious. It's the same fact that some of the key characters you meet uh, when uh, draw light, and I'm going to pronounce it Lasselle. Yeah, you got it. Lascelles. Lascelles. Uh, are first introduced. And I'm like, well, I, I'm you're giving me a lot about these people. And yeah, I don't... I've, see, they're, no. they're not the main characters. Well, they don't need to be main characters, do they? They're very important characters to the book. And you learn a lot of really important information. Like, Drawlight is a great example. Like, you learn almost everything you need to know about Drawlight. And in fact, you don't even learn everything that's really important because Susanna Clark was like, I have to save some of this for later. But you learn some really important information about him. The first thing you learn is that he's the villain of a PG Woodhouse novel. Like, you know, you learn immediately that he's this, like, um, this social climber and that he's an arsehole. You learn this anecdote about him wearing this fancy gown to a special party and there was a white cat in the room. Um, and rather than let it get on his clothes, he picks it up and throws it out of a window. That's an anecdote that is shared about him, and this book is told almost as a series of historical anecdotes written as a historical treatise. I want to talk about that later. Um, You learn a really important thing about him, and it's demonstrated quite adequately through, like, as though you were learning about him in a history book. 
And this is where I don't want people to sort of misunderstand me. Because these are the thoughts and ideas that I had mm-hmm. when I was in that first quarter, when I didn't know where this story was going. I think that's where I found it difficult to get into this book. Mm-hmm. Because I came into this book thinking, yes, it's about the conflict between Strange and Norrell. Yes, it's about uh, Strange, he goes to the Napoleonic War, I knew that. But it took quite a while for me to kind of puzzle out or to force this book onto a standard uh, fantasy structure, okay? Mm. I'm used to the Fellowship going out. I'm used to there being the Dark Lord and everything being very clearly signposted. To be quite honest, Jordy, I'm used to knowing what the ending of books are very quickly. (laughs) And Strange and Noel didn't do that. And it's weird because that's obviously a positive. Like, that is without a doubt a positive. Mm -hmm. But for the first 200 pages... It made me lost and it made yeah. me confused and a little scared. This is new and this is it, different it's, and it's I relevant know how to react. It's relevant to, to me that I mentioned that my familiarity with the Regency era in terms of books comes from the County Monte Cristo because this book has a lot more in common with the County Monte Cristo than it does to any other fantasy novel that we have discussed so far in our podcast. It is written in the style of this era you know you're gonna see a lot more in common with jane austen than you are to victoria aveyard or brandon sanderson without a doubt that is such the point and i think that's where Mm -hmm. i have to make clear as a modern fantasy reader i struggled with the opening because i didn't know what it was trying to do it took about the first 200 pages to be quite honest to the real introduction of our second lead Jonathan Strange. I definitely agree with that. Jonathan Strange is such a breath of fresh fresh air, and I think that is so deliberate because the character of Gilbert Norrell, the thing about one of our main characters, right there in the title, it's listen, I can't stress enough how clever the title of this book is. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Everything about it is so well chosen. The first character you see right there you think the book is going to be about, he doesn't appear, as Duncan says, for the first, like, 200 pages of this 850-page book. The first quarter, there's no sign of him. And you keep thinking, when's he going to show up? And in the footnotes of a book, he keeps being referenced. He keeps being referenced. And his relationship to Gilbert Norrell is made explicit. He's his pupil. They're going to have a falling out. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting. When's he going to show up? And when he finally shows up, you just, ah, you breathe this big sigh of relief because you've spent so much time cooped off with Gilbert Norrell, who is a jerk, who you don't really like that much, who at best you kind of pity for his social awkwardness. And then, oh good, Jonathan's here and it's a very big change in vibe. And... That's the reason why you're so willing to take Jonathan on as your new hero. So what we're kind of praising there is this book makes you feel a bit, I'm going to say claustrophobic with Norrell. Um, you've just, I found everything that he did, everything was so slow, everything was so meticulous. He, the fact that he... It's like being at one of Drawlight's parties and stuck next to Gilbert Noel and hearing him talk about a bunch of boring stuff and then someone interesting enters the conversation. You go, oh, thank heavens. Yes, please. Tell me all about your day. What have you been up to? And that's what Strange becomes. And that's why he... You instantly, I found so likeable. He... The, so he's mm. the charismatic counterpoint to Noel. But then what this... Let's... 
let's break down, because we really haven't made it explicit yet. We've told, said it in loose terms, but Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is about um, two magicians who bring back English magic. At the time of the book, um, England has had a long history of magic, but as has been set up in the opening chapter of the book, no one's been able to do magic for centuries. It just sort of vanished. And the, these two men appear to be the only people who can do it now. And they want to bring back English magic. Gilbert Norrell is the first person to have magic, and he has it because he has hoarded all the books of magic, all of them, for himself. He refuses to share any of it. The first thing he does in the book is destroy a society of magicians who can't even do magic just because they might threaten his ability to have complete control over the future of English magic. And then what Jonathan Strange represents is the sort of the anti-point to that hoarding of knowledge. He comes in and he is not only about sharing it in terms of teaching, but also using it. He is the one mm-hmm. that when the cool comes to, like, let's go over to... Um, to Portugal, let's go and fight in the Napoleonic Wars. He's like, yep, I'm off. At, at, I want, now we've arrived at my minigame, Duncan. Uh, your test for this episode. How many feats of magic are performed in this book? I want you, I'm going to ask you, who does more magic, Norrell or Strange, and how much? Uh, okay. Now, here, here are, here's the limitations, okay? I'm down for that. We're only this. talking about successful spells. So if you try to cast a spell and it fails, that doesn't count. Um, and if you um, if you see the result of magic, um, that counts as a spell being cast. So, for example, you never see Mr. Norrell enchant his library, but we see the effect and therefore we know a spell was cast. That counts as one. Abstract things like someone cast the same spell many times over like several weeks, that's one spell. Well, my gut instinct is to say... Who do you think cast more spells? That one Jonathan Strange cast more spells by Mm. a good amount. Um, I'm thinking of, we get a lot of very graphic depiction, a lot of very flashy kind of magic during Mm -hmm. the war sections you know he's making roads he's moving weather he's raising the dead um he's moving the city of brussels to america quite a fantastic moment that exactly that's so good that's amazing isn't it i have we haven't mentioned this book is very funny in a very dry british way it's very funny so yeah i would definitely go on to mr strange for clear examples at the oh Oh, I might be misaccrediting uh, work here. He does this a wonderful scene, and I love how this was written. He makes these illusions mm. of ships outside of it. Is that Norrell? That's Norrell. Okay. It's un it's unnoral like, I'll admit that. It feels a lot more strange. It's <laughs> that is a great scene, uh, about these it's a great scene. pieces of illusion ships are made out of the rain. Beautiful. Uh, but no, mm. I'd say it was strange. Strange just a flashy... To trick the French, he means. you like, that's some important context. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. To trick the French. To, the, to the, keep them trapped in British their ports and be like... Just outside yeah, exactly. uh, their port. But Duncan, yeah. I'm going to need some numbers. Okay. Like, what ratio, if you prefer to do that? Like, what proportion is strange? Unless you want to say you think strange did, like, 20 feats of magic to Norrell's eight. What do you think it is? 
I actually think it's relatively low. I think we're talking Strange doing something like 18 and Noel 11. All right. So so it's fairly close, but Strange is like so, less you, than I'm double I'm going to assume Noel's. that when you reread this book, you went through and actually marked this all up. Yeah, I did a tally chart. <laughs> okay. All right. So here's a list of all the feats of magic. Um, no, I haven't listed what each one was. That would be crazy. Um... I could have done that though, but um, Subtle Brand? Gilbert no. Norrell, yeah, thirteen, right? So you're pretty close. Good. Uh, Jonathan Strange, fifty. Oh wow! He went insane at the end of the book. I mean, he literally does go insane, but he was doing so much magic, like bam, 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 bam all over the place, turning walls into birds. Um, <laughs> you know, giving people illusions, threatening to turn a man into a, you know whatever but um yeah strange starts doing a ton of magic at the end of the book and the battle of waterloo is like seven spells all on its own do you know what I but yeah. that being said childermas five and of course segundus one four magicians okay norrell also picks up a magic right at the end like the last quarter of the book he does about eight spells bring him up from five to thirteen Childermas at one point was only two spells behind him, and I wondered, is Childermas going to do more magic in this book than Mr. Norrell? So going back over to Mr. Norrell then, I, I mean, he does his initial, like, feats to impress people, and then mm-hmm. I'm thinking, obviously, feats of Mr. Norrell, we have bringing statues to life, raising the dead, and... Yeah. I want, let's just really jump in on... Well, first of all, he didn't raise the dead, but we're going, I want to focus in on the bringing statues to life because I feel like it is this amazing illustration of all of Susanna Clarke's strengths in one chapter. See, Jordi, I'm just going to let you like fly into this because your passion and love for this sure, is sure. zooting. So go on. What I feel like so it really has to be highlighted is Jonathan... No. I really feel like it has to be highlighted that Norrell's first feat of magic, the thing that makes him publicly renowned, is his enchantment of York Cathedral to prove that he has true magic. That he doesn't just read books, but he can actually do practical magic. He brings all the statues in the cathedral to life. And all of these beings, these these stone beings, have spent their a thousand years watching the town of York. And they suddenly start bursting out. And for a whole chapter, Susanna Clarke does what she does best. She delves deep. She doesn't give any surface level stuff. Each of these statues is given personal history and the history of things they have witnessed. There are statues which she describes as having wanted to argue with one another for centuries and finally get a chance to hash it out. There are statues that have been witnesses to crimes, which have been stopped reporting on those crimes. There is a statue which has been taken away from the cathedral for maintenance, which wakes up in a shock and almost gives a man a heart attack. There are so many, like, jokes, anecdotes, and pieces of personal history which have been carried on and expanded in these incredibly detailed footnotes which she does throughout the book there have to be hundreds of these footnotes it just goes to show what really makes her work sing and what makes it so special and it's the bit that i didn't get for that first 200 pages 
it's these anecdotes, these aside that I kept looking at and thinking, how does this relate to the plot? What's the story you're trying to tell here? And it took me a while to really appreciate that. No, this, these are the point. Yes, exactly. You know, this is a history. Anecdotes works. So I'm now going to jump in on one of my favorite quotes from the book. And I'm going to read it first because it demonstrates so aptly what a beautiful writer Susanna Clarke is because her prose is incredibly strong, but also a very important point about the perspective of this book. It has been remarked by a lady infinitely cleverer than the present author how kindly disposed the world in general feels to young people who either die or marry. Imagine then the interest that surrounded Mrs. Miss Wintertown no young lady ever had such advantages before, for she died upon the Tuesday, was raised to life in the early hours of Wednesday morning, and was married upon the Thursday, which some people thought too much excitement for one week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Duncan's little hmm is exactly right, because that's the sort of small, clever laugh this book wins from you so many times. Um, but... I want to highlight in on, not the wit of this section, but the brackets by a lady infinitely cleverer than the present author. Susanna Clarke is playing in this book. She has inserted herself into this book. She is a, not a Regency era lady. She is a Victorian era lady looking back on the prior decades of English magic. Susanna Clarke in this book is a magical historian a female author from the future. We might well see her inception in the final chapter of this book. Oh, sod. The things she knows, like the private conversations, I would bet good money that it's about a woman who has summoned up a fairy spirit to look into the detailed past of these historical events, to find out things that she shouldn't be able to know. Oh, that's more clever than I gave it credit for. Alright. Damn. Like, I was picking up on that. I could tell, you know, this is meant to be a historical text. Sure, but... that's why there's so many footnotes. I know, but I didn't quite realise it was doing uh, the idea of it actually, because it works with the sort of the theming and the structure, how each person is sort of presented, particularly around class and position in society. Sure. That works if you view it more as, say, a Victorian era going back you know it's still archaic to modern standards mm. but it still has a reflective note on some of the characters being presented in the novel i see uh i'm sorry to be to be more precise, i'm talking about the characters of Shildermas and stephen black sure absolutely uh these are uh, Shildermas is a servant mm-hmm. and how it's written about him in his so servant's position a common thing is that everyone always treats him like poorly because he is a servant, but the mm. author sort of reflects on this. Yeah, you know, the narrator is saying to you like, yeah, they weren't taking him seriously, but they should have. Mm-hmm. Because John Shieldmas is one of the like, is the other magician. He's a magician before Jonathan Strange is a magician. The, the fact that he's oh, the, so... book, the book is so explicit that because he's not a gentleman, his his talents are never recognised. But he's literally the, one of the smartest people in the entire book. Probably is the smartest. Oh, I'd happily say that. Mm-hmm. He is he is the definition. He saw that... Um, I don't want to say it's quite Jeeves and Worcester because Worcester is too much of a knock to Mr. Norrell. But 
he is the intelligent sort of butler character mm-hmm. who is basically getting his master out of trouble mm. so much more often than Mr. Noel gets himself out of trouble or sees through situations. Mm, absolutely. And the other character you mentioned, of course, is Stephen Black, who is enormously important to this book. Um, he, on one hand, he demonstrates an important theme in this book, which is the self-awareness of the station of certain characters. So you've already mentioned the fact that John Childermas is underestimated because he's a servant. Um, an important theme in this book is how the voices of women are disregarded. There would be no problems in this book. Every problem in this book would be adequately solved if the men in power listened to the women around them. That is, like, right there on the page. And the strongest and biggest one is Stephen Black, because Stephen Black, as his name would suggest, is black. He's a black man, a black servant, living in Regency-era London. He's never met anyone who looks like him. He's completely alone. And the book is incredibly explicit that, you know, he's someone who, even though it's illegal to be a slave in the UK, you can't, the moment he's touched down on English soil as a baby, he was a free man, he has low station, and he can be harmed in any way, and no one will ever face repercussions for it. And the irony of this book is that Stephen Black, in his time, becomes King of England. Oh, he does, and that just to me... Okay, so I was going to make a sort of an inference there about what I think one of the major themes of this book is. Sure. Geordie, what... I'm going to ask you first. What do you think the major theme of this book is? And we're back. <laughs> Sorry for that, everybody. We struck a little snag in the audio session, didn't we, Dunk? Yeah, a little technical hiccup here and there, but I think we've got it all sorted out now. You should be hearing my... Wonderful new crisp audio quality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Brand new microphone. Bound to be some mistakes to happen. But I think where we left off, Duncan, was that you were just about to tell us what you think the main theme of this book is. And it all ties in with Stephen Black. Absolutely. And that is the theme of Englishness. Or what it means to be English. And I found this... Oh, could I say, this book has multiple themes. I'm not going to deny that. But this is the one that... I won't even call it the main theme, but it's one that struck the best chord with me personally. Sure. So this book sets out initially to frame Englishness, Englishness in the same way that a lot of um, sort of the text that it's paying homage to do. I think Jane Austen, I think Dickens works. The idea, well, maybe Dickens. I think the idea of like they're no, the gentlemen. Uh, you've got the idea of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noel. They are gentlemen. And a lot of what they talk about, particularly when Strange is in the Peninsula War, is what a gentleman would do. We must be like gentlemen mm-hmm. to be English. And that's really a strong framing device. But then you get the character of Stephen Black. And Stephen Black is a character that makes a really strong decision in this book. He effectively, by the end of the story, becomes the king of England, or the king of fairy England, however you kind of want to phrase it. But what it comes down to is a character who isn't native to the country. Mm-hmm. He's brought here pretty much against his will in sort of some sure. respects. Uh, who doesn't have his the name of his sort of birth country, the name that his mother gave him. He just has an English name assigned to him. But he makes a decision to identify as English. And there's a really powerful moment near the end of the book where the character, the man with the thistle down hair, offers to tell Stephen Black his true name, his birth name, the name that his mother wanted to give him. And Stephen Black mm-hmm. just goes, No. I don't mm-hmm. need to hear it. 
I am Stephen Black. I have lived in my whole life. I, despite the fact that a lot of people don't see me that way, I identify as an Englishman. And, and I choose to belong. And I choose, I to, choose to belong to be. here. And he makes that choice. And for me, I think it's a wonderful kind of look at Englishness, not as what it's been said to be from sort of the higher ups of society, who, when you think about it, represent a tiny proportion of the population, you know. The majority mm. of people who are living in England then and today aren't the gentlemen. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. they might be natives, but there's so many people who have come to England over the years. You know, you even talk about Englishness, you talk about like the Angles. Well, that was a tribe that kind of emigrated to the land at one exactly. point. Exactly. It's striking that that the the version of England which Stephen Black rules over is the absolute core of it. It's the island itself. It's the land. You know, he he the trees and the hills bow to him. It says that he is in some way the most English person there is. He belongs here more than any other. And that's why his subsequent scene is him, like, moving to Ferry, to, to leaving England behind, because he's essentially ascended past it. I really read this as it kind of saying that no one person is any more English than another or has a greater claim mm. to the land. It's just about deciding for yourself that you want to belong to that land, that that is your land, that you... And the idea that... You, yeah, and the idea that this gentlemanly bar, which things have to live up to, is redundant and ridiculous. You know, the end of the book in terms of how magic plays out beyond the life of Jonathan Strange... And and Gilbert Norrell is that it no longer just belongs to two gentlemen. It's no longer held by a tiny fraction. Now, the magicians are going to be people of the land, uh, farmers and <laughs> dancers and women as well as men. It's such a kind of beautiful message using magic because I definitely see the magic in this as uh, they all talk about like bringing back English magic and it's the old yes, magic. It's English old... magic. It's not magic. It's English magic. It is quintessentially a part of what it means to be English in this book. And that no matter what kind of strange and all try and do, they can't have control over that. And they certainly shouldn't. And that's the biggest point, you know. And something that I puzzled with... A sort of question I had, even on my reread, is this one thing that um, a very interesting character, a Childermass, Childermass says, and that is, at one point, he's talking to Strange, and Strange says, what if Norrell defeats me? What if his version of English magic takes supremacy? And Childermass says, then I will take your place, and I will challenge him. And if you beat Norrell, then I will take his place and I will challenge you from his side. And at first, it's not initially obvious to me what stance Childermass is taking here. Like, he doesn't seem to be a contrarian by nature. In fact, he's quite a dutiful servant. But what I think is truth is that, as he reveals later down the line, he's not a servant to Norrell. He considers himself a servant to the Raven King to English magic itself and that he should not allow one idea of magic to hold supremacy that it has to be fought that it has to be varied and diverse now does this not make a bit of a contradiction though because the Raven King is still one person and it's still all the magic is his magic I No, no, definitely not. Because when they say the Raven King's magic, what they're really talking about is that the Raven King 
was someone who was listening, you know? Like, the Raven King, they make it very explicit. He didn't invent magic. There were magicians before him, like Merlin. What he did was that he spoke to England, and England spoke to him. He had, in an unrivaled way, the magic of the fairies. And he was able to do greater works of magic than anyone else because he was listening. So this is a little bit of a side chat, but it's just popped in my head. I love it how so much literature casually uh, canonizes Merlin as a wizard. Yeah, it's great. Like, The Stranger Thing does it. I'm pretty confident Harry Potter basically does it. Merlin is, 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 is in there. And like, I was literally reading the other day a comic book called um mm. it's a batman comic book called knight and squire which is about the english version oh and in that they're just casually like yeah 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 merlin's magic it's what keeps this place together and it's just like yep yeah, official merlin's in the dc well that makes sense doesn't it <laughs> um do you know how like what the end of merlin's life is like how he gets got um i don't know no i don't think i do don't I? He's um he's a he's actually a bit of a pervert. He keeps hitting on this like this either a fairy or a nymph or something like that called Nimue. And Nimue is so sick of him, but she can't get rid of him because he's a powerful wizard. So she like she uses her feminine wiles and his attraction to her to persuade him to teach him all of his secrets. <laughs> to persuade him to teach her all of his secrets and then she becomes a more powerful wizard than him and locks him either inside a cave or a tree i forget which i'm sure there's a version of story that contains both or either yeah probably one that says it's both part of the, like, it's a tree in a cave it's part of the like the return of arthur is also the return of merlin when he like you know rolls the stone aside <laughs> or something i don't know oh we've got to touch on a version of king arthur Oh, I'm planning to. I'm planning on going to T.S. White. Don't you worry. Hey, I'm looking forward to that. I am. When it comes to like talking about things of like English magic, I think if you ever feel maybe a bit disassociated from it and you're like, I don't, I don't really get what's going on. Mm-hmm. Any, just look at King Arthur. I think that's what we're all actually talking about. Yeah. Yes, King Arthur, mostly canonized by a Frenchman. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the English royal family canonized by the frenchman literally replaced by the dutch anyway um speaking of the dutch it's time for another of my favorite lines in this book unfortunately Childermatter's french was so strongly accented by his native yorkshire that minervois did not understand and asked strange if Childermatter was dutch <laughs> i love the strong points that uh sarah clark makes about yorkshire I can only assume she's from Yorkshire, like the amount of... She has to be. She has, I don't know. And also, I don't want to check is in a weird way because it's either she has <sighs> to be from Yorkshire, not just because of the amount of... I can call them Yorkshireisms, but the fact is she clearly loves it. I've never mm. met someone from Yorkshire who didn't want to basically wave its own flag. That being said, no one in this book says the word tut when they should say the. So, you know, maybe she's not from Yorkshire. Well, they're not from up to north. Uh, no, I'm so sorry. No, we can't. I mean, we yeah, should I mean, not be doing I, that. I mean, uh, Even though you're I'm from the north, get in trouble. I'm not from the north. From I'm the just north. called Geordie. I'm not from the north. Uh, he's from Cambridge, people, which is a, a northern city. If you're wondering, for our Americans, uh, the the north-south divide in this book is extremely important. But the thing about the north-south divide is that it doesn't 
exist. Like, it's not like in America where there's a Mason-Dixon line and you can say everything under this line is for South. And we have ideas about what the South is. We have ideas about the North and South over here. Southerners are jerks and posh wankers uh... and posh wankers and work for the BBC and um, everyone up north is not that and they're rough and tough and friendly and polite and will kick your teeth in that is the way uh, we also have that a really a confusing concept uh, which some people claim exists I'm not convinced known as the Midlands um, they've even put it on road signs but I think it's a conspiracy Let, let's press on let's press on and you know we've spoken about magic and I feel like that is the key thing that we have to hit in this book is the, the strange sense of magic um, Duncan would you take us away I okay so often when you talk about magic systems a uh, common phrase that gets thrown about the sort of zeitgeist space of fantasy literature is the idea of soft and hard magic soft yeah, magic right. being very loosely defined and hard mm-hmm. magic being uh, I'm not going to best example Brandon Sanderson like you it's like a video game there are these mechanics and this is how it you have functions. a list of powers and then you use those powers in specific ways exactly this book i find quite interesting because i believe what we've got here is an in universe the magic system is quite hard but to mm-hmm. the reader it's kept very soft yes and it's soft because the characters in the book fundamentally do not understand the magic that they wield i think there's an section I, I don't know the exact quote that kind of really sums this up where strange and all are having a discussion about a certain spell and uh-huh. no strange is just like obviously i took it from this bloke but uh obviously this entire section here is actually does nothing and i was like mm. oh yes 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 of course i know um because they are they're kind of like going through entire books where for people writing their like magical history and it's like mm-hmm. 200 pages of nothing and then they're like and then there's like one paragraph which is actual magic mm-hmm. they just exactly. kind of it's, through. it's sim it's really interesting that like the history of magic in the world of strange and Norrell is such that there's so much misinformation just because people don't understand. They're doing their best, and just occasionally, a little sliver of magic comes through. I would kind of sum it up as, it's like Strange and Noel uh, driving a car, and they've got on there, and they started playing with the controls. And they're like, okay, this big wheelie thing seems to control direction, but they mm-hmm. still don't have any idea about what's actually Why connecting it turns? all together. Yeah. Sure, that's a good analogy, actually, yeah. And what I think is a really strong element of this, and there's so much of this that ties together, is the weirdness of a magic, you know? It's so... It's hard to describe. It's not like the magic is eldritch and otherworldly. It's the fact that it's just so neatly done, you know? Each one feels like a particular parlor trick. Do you ever get the impression, because there are spells that get talked about, which I'm like, okay, that is a rain spell, you know, which makes the clouds yeah. gather. There are known spells. Like, this is a spell you can cast and it will do X. But, like I said, like I said, like the components aren't there. There's a bit during the Peninsula War where Strange is summoning up roads. And I'm, mm-hmm. I really got thinking about that, going like, is there a spell which is just the straight road spell? Or is it like this complicated section of flattened land? summon forth paving stones i think it's exactly like that i think it's a series of steps like an algorithm that he has to program it's like really like programming a computer you have to give us a specific set of instructions to do in order 
Like, he tells the Duke of Wellington, I could make it a gravel road, I can make it a moss road, I can make it a dirt road, and he shoots these all one by one. And then it's Wellington who says, I would like a Roman road. And then he describes the specifications of the road, and then Strange does that. And I think it's supposed to be understood that it is like the words he says and the the way he moves his hands that determines, or the way he thinks about the spell, that determines the outcome. Also, just so you know, I am hearing occasionally your... Vroom, vroom. Uh, I don't have that game Peter. That's just because I'm getting... Yeah, I'll just I'll just turn it off now. No worries, I just... I'll set it to silence. It's just all the girls on Bumble who want to contact me. Ah, uh, I, uh, I don't know the feeling, but good for you. Now, I like the idea about the roads. It also makes me think a lot when he gets to the more complex verse, particularly near the end of the book, where it's like, what? so what's he doing now? Is this like a build giant tower spell out of darkness? This is true for Strange throughout the book, is that he's the one who's most able to just do what he wants. You know, he's the one who's able to experiment and put the pieces of magic together and try things out, whereas Norrell has no imagination. He can only do things that are written in books. And I think this is partly a reflection of Strange as a character. He's more free-spirited, and it's also a sort of example of necessity, because he has been denied these books by Norrell. Norrell, being afraid that Strange would triumph over him as the chief wizard in all of uh, England, justifiably, that happens, um... He has denied him access to the really good books, leaving him the dregs. And he has to do all the brilliant and clever stuff he has with limited resources. And it makes him a better magician. Do you feel like uh, between the Mm. two main characters, you know, there's this schism between them. Do you feel that the schism there then, it would sort of be kind of inevitability that Normal would never let anyone... Whatever Strange wanted to do, eventually Norrell would have to be like, okay, that's enough. Absolutely. Norrell is so uh, reclusive and selfish that he could never suffer anyone, even his best friend, which Strange is, to possess magic. They literally have to be locked together at the end of a book before they're able to properly get along. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the uh, end of the book? I would rather not go straight into the end of the book i'd rather lay some more foundations first particularly as we're just on right now the relationship between strange and Norrell, and then i'd like to talk about the gentleman with thistle down hair and then i'm prepared to okay. talk about the end of the book jordy can i throw something out there and this is something that i had when i first started reading the book i say started reading it quarter of the way through people when mr strange gets introduced sure sure but and i had this idea it was really kind of building in my head i did eventually abandon it but I want to know whether or not maybe you had the same experience on your first read. And that was doing a gay queer mm, reading yeah, of sure. Gilbert Norris and Strange Relationship. Mm-hmm. Because I got this particularly at the fact that Norrell, his enjoyment of Strange's company uh, seems to be incredibly kind of focused. He is he, he gets he starts being a bit more animated, he's excited when he comes around. At the same time, he also has a complete and utter blank to the fact that Strange has a wife or <laughs> any other sociability. Like, Noel does not show any... Do you know what? I'm not even confident, other than the woman that tries to shoot him 
and the young woman he brings back from the dead, oh, same person, that he even really talks. <laughs> no, to I mean, it's quite character. it's quite explicit. Arabella says that she he, she repays zero attention to her and hardly even acknowledges that she exists. Um, even when he like outbids her at a um at a um at an auction, it's um yeah, I I think there's it's a very obvious sort of direction to go in in regards to uh, a queer reading hell like strange's name could even be read as queer you know like it could almost be like a little wink and a nudge and i was definitely it's on my mind both of the times i read this book but ultimately i kind of just say no i, I don't think so there's a lot of points in its favor you've already pointed out that strange is the only person who no can sort of tolerate and there's also points when he, like, he shows no attention to women whatsoever. He's a bachelor, and, you know, like, a bachelor is almost a code word back in the old days. Um, there's a very famous, like, story of a everything-but-out man in the British film industry. He played Blofeld. I forget his name. is Peter something. Um, he was very much, like known in certain circles to be a gay man and the last line of his obituary was he never married so you know coded language like that exists for a reason particularly in something set in the in the regency period but that being said norrell is such a sexless character i i just don't think that any of the interest he has in any character comes down to a desire for companionship he's fundamentally in my mind quite asexual I fully agree. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely near the very end of this book that kind of cinched it for me. Uh, at the end of this novel, because that's when, you, strange. that's when you expect something would happen if that's what it's about, you know? Or a reveal, or just a description, even if it's just internalised mm-hmm. of his emotions. But even when you get to the very end, when Nora realises he's basically trapped with Strange for alone <laughs> in the dark forever, um, all he ever thinks about is, excellent, I have my research partner. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah, and and, and it's it, yeah, it's it's so obvious as a direction to go in that it's all that it's. I don't want to how to say that, but like, it's Susanna you know, Clark has intentionally decided to not make it explicit or even really allude. Yeah, I I can't even imagine like if I were a gay man that I would find any like attachment to either of these characters in that regard. You know, like. You know who's also negligent of women, but is probably not a gay man? Jonathan Strange. Yeah. It's not about so. it's not about attraction to men, which makes them negligent of women. It's their masculinity. It's it's the fact that they are so focused on themselves and their work and their people's perception of them that they don't pay attention to their wives or the people they're supposed to care about, like the woman you brought back from the death. I like that you used the term masculinity, where I clearly would have said narcissism. Well, uh, you can make the synonyms if you like, but synonyms, synonyms. Lady, Lady Pole would agree with me. She would say that it is fundamentally the fact that they are men and that they have neglected their wives. It is very much tied into their, their station as men. You know, the whole point of this book is about unheard voices, right? We've already talked about Lady Pole in that regard, along with Stephen Black. And and Lady Paul's whole point in having a unspoken voice is that you didn't listen to your wife. If you had paid more attention to her, she wouldn't have been abducted by a fairy. 
<laughs> that runs true to even Lady Pole herself. If anyone, so Walter Pole mm-hmm. drives me mad in this book. Lady Absolutely, Pole's husband, because he thinks he's being a good, conscientious husband. And that's, I think, what makes it even more irksome is that he thinks he's doing the right. He's like, whenever his wife uh, tries to tell about her experience, so mm-hmm. Lady Pole, I don't even know if, if we explain this, but... We don't have to explain it. It's very challenging. I'll explain it again anyway. Lady Pole, when it was brought back from the dead by Mr. Noel, he Mr. Noel made a deal with the fairy that helped him do it, that half of Lady Pole's life would belong to the fairy, the man with the thistle-down hair. Now, Noel didn't really think through the terms of the contract, didn't read the small print, and assumed that what would happen was she'd have about 30 years of life with everyone else, and the other half of her remaining 60-odd years, he would whisk her away, and everyone would just think she was dead. But that's not what the man with our hair does. Instead, he takes her nighttime life. Every night when she tries to go to bed, he whisks her away to his magical kingdom and his palace of lost hope, and makes her dance the night away in these garish, macabre balls. Oh, gosh. Intense imagery there. And every time that she tries to tell her husband or anyone in the normal world what's happening to her, instead of the words that she wants to say coming out of her mouth, instead, what comes out of her mouth is what is this sort of story of ancient fairies interacting with the English. Mm. And almost all of which get recounted in detail in the footnotes. Indeed. Fun footnotes, like, okay, we talk about, like, short stories and lengths of, like, books and the impact it has on how you, like, consume it. This is a big book. Some of these footnotes mm. is as if Susanna Clarke has managed to write a paragraph-long short story. There is one short story in particular, Duncan, that, being on the audiobook, I couldn't help but wonder, is this literally just going on for several pages? There is like, one section of this the book. The story of the ring. Uh, yes exactly there is one bit in this book where it goes to footnotes and the footnote is about half the page and then you turn the page Mm. over and there's two lines from the main text and then it's just footnote and you turn to the next page and there's three lines from the main text and then it's just footnotes is that the one continuous story yes i thought so yeah do do you want to sidetrack there we can zig and zag no i don't (laughs) It's very well. I don't done. think that's relevant. It's 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 a fun it's a fun story. Like she just decided she was going to write a, like a fairy tale. But no, we it's it's not necessary to your reading of of Strange and Oral. You could literally skip it if you wanted to. Uh, not that you should skip the footnotes, but if you wanted to, it's not relevant. Um, and we do not need to get into it at all. It does, however, pertain to a fun line that I like from the book. It's time for another quote. Ah. Oh. This is Gilbert Norrell explaining the value of putting um, power into objects. Um, it's literally a joke about Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> I might have used my Gilbert Norrell voice. By placing some of his power in an object that he chooses, the magician makes himself secure from the waning of his powers, which are the inevitable result of illness and old age. I myself have often been severely tempted to do it. My skills can often be quite overturned by a heavy cold or a sore throat. I mean, for the record, I think that is your universal stuffy professor voice or wise wizardy fellow voice. No, I have a lot of crazy wizardy fellows. That was definitely my more my gentleman professor voice. 
And that being said, Duncan, we shouldn't make fun of Gilbert Norrell there, because we are podcasters, and we also can be quite overturned by a sore throat. It is one of my greatest fears, and something that I've actually managed to not have throughout the entirety of a worldwide pandemic. I've I don't understand my luck. I need a touch I'm quote. genuinely so jealous of you, Duncan. I have a really sensitive and vulnerable throat. Like, I like singing. I'm a pretty good singer. But I could never make it as a professional musician because I have so de- I have such delicate vocal cords. I lose my voice all the time. I don't know why I started a podcast. This seems like a really bad idea. I mean, you managed to drag your way through D&D game after D&D game. I think that's why They've you must do combat. my voice, man. Like your voice is dying. He's like, right, you're getting attacked. (laughs) No RP Uh, this session. Um, I actually need to go back to the original point I was making. Right. Unheard voices. Mrs. Paul. And she's just saying these fairy stories. And you know that if someone like Strange just sat down and listened to her telling these stories, which all relate to the fairy and the fae, he would work it out. Because Strange has has never met her. He's never met her until he runs into her at the ball and doesn't even recognise her. He doesn't know when he finds a finger that it's hers because he's never met her. Despite the fact that she's his wife's friend. Yeah, he's been to her house many, many times. He's the colleague of her husband, but he's never taken an interest. Going back to why I hate Sir Walter... Is that mm-hmm. I can't say that he thinks he's doing good because he packs his wife away to like essentially a madhouse in the country, yes. a nice one, but he's just like, oh yes, no, she is difficult and reclusive. I know. I'll remove all stimulation and just pack her off to a country house, so yeah, I don't need absolutely. to deal with it. It's absolutely about hysteria. It's absolutely about the idea that women expressing her emotion is in some way mentally ill and has to be packed off and sent to a sanitarium. That's why it's so cathartic when the spell is broken and she can speak. Like I almost, I was on a walk when it happened and I almost threw my hands in the air at delight when she gets to say, I have been enchanted, you know? I love that moment, but I love the moment even more when she's still in the Fae and she runs into Jonathan Strange. Oh yes. And this, oh, this scene... This was my, like, punch-the-air scene for this book mm. because it's the bit where Strange, by pure accident, he has wandered into the Fae, mostly just to prove that he could do it to Noel, and he bumps into his wife, who he thought lost, dead. She wasn't dead. She'd been magicked away. And he's like, oh, that's fantastic. I, I can rescue you. It's so great you're not dead. And Mrs. Paul comes up, and she's just like, don't talk to him. He doesn't care. He's not here to save us. And he's like... And Strange is like, but no, I, I will totally save you. And she goes, did you come here to save us? And he has to look ashamed and down, just be like, well, well no, I, I just came from my own. Actually, no, I'm not. I wasn't actually thinking about you at all. Yeah. I haven't thought about you for months. It's phenomenal. And it's really interesting, you know, like the peril up to that point in the book for a long time has not been, will Strange find his wife? The peril has been, is Strange going to fall in love with another woman? Because a younger, attractive woman has entered the scene and he is interested in her. And so we, with dramatic irony, knowing Arabella is still alive, we're tearing at our hair saying, Strange, will you just pay attention? And the wonderful thing about that scene, Duncan, is not just that it takes our main character to task in a really justified way. It's fantastic just how flawed both our heroes are. And I am throwing 
Norrell into the role of hero, even though you could argue that he is the villain of the piece, the main villain. Because every moment after that, Jonathan Strange is single-mindedly focused on one thing. Defeat the gentleman with thistle-down hair and return his wife to the world of the living, no matter the cost. It is a turning point, and it definitely makes it that when you get to those final stages of the novel, and to be honest, I felt this beforehand actually quite a lot, that Strange is the it's the one of him and Norrell that you're meant to be siding with. And I think mostly that's done through Norrell just being very unlikable fundamentally. Um, actually, all of it's done like that. Mm-hmm. But that he has like this honourable calling. But I don't want Strange's sort of character turn to take away to what Lady Pole's moment is, which is the f- first moment of someone just saying, shut up, mm. you're not the hero. This is all your freaking fault. He said it, man. Now, speaking, and we've mentioned now fairies a lot, and I think that this is one of the most substantial thing this this episode of a podcast is going to do for the show. This is a great book. I'm glad that you ultimately came around and decided, hey, I like this book. I like it a lot. But what I think this is really going to do for us is the depiction of the fae. Duncan, how often do you see fairies in your fantasy novels? Okay, so there's a bit of an open question then. What's defined as a fairy? Um, but I would genuinely say never and once. That's interesting. That's interesting. Can you go into the once, please? Absolutely. Um, I read a book by, and I hope I get this name right, because you think it's Paul, but it's definitely not. Paul. Paul Anderson. Broken Sword. And this is a fantastic read um, because he takes the Fae very much in the same line as uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norm. Mm. The Fae are scary. They're unattached. Mm-hmm. They don't have the, quite the same moral values as human as humans do. Mm-hmm. These are the Fae that steal children from their cribs. Absolutely. Um, but they're not unreasonable. And they, they do have a culture. But they just have a very different moral code to what the humans do that story oh sorry and actually i do have to say um tay pratchett also did this in his approach on the fae i'm sure i'm sure to be wicked and evil so. i've never read the um uh seen fairies show up in terry's work where do they show up um probably the witches so definitely yeah it's in the witches lords and ladies okay. which does a bit of a riff on some uh, midsummer's night's uh, dream naturally sure. and then they show quite heavily in the tiffany aching books the very first one we three men and I believe the final one, Shepherd's Crown. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but yes, you're right. There is something really striking and special about the depiction of Fae here. It it goes right back to the fact that, you know, the reason why fairies are called the fair folk, Duncan, is because it's a polite name given to them so that they won't be angry at you. You're like, it's the idea that they are such hateful, vengeful little creatures that they're unpredictable. They could bless you or they could curse you. You know, it's by pure accident that uh, that Stephen Black is on the good side of this fairy for the most mercurial of reasons. And mercurial is is the very word to describe a gentleman with thistle down hair. It's because he thinks that that uh, Stephen Black is very handsome. That is for Dominic the only reason. Um, there's some great, really tense scenes where mm-hmm. Stephen Black is having to think to himself, keep your composure, keep your composure, because he knows that it's his composure and, like, unraving cool mm. that makes the man with the thistle-down hair like him and thus not kill him. 
Absolutely. And he's constantly having to play out. It's actually, it makes it, it was actually quite harrowing in terms of someone who's sort of trapped in this, especially like a like a, an abusive relationship. Uh, it's yeah. just they're like, don't say the don't say the wrong thing, don't say the wrong thing. Constantly mm-hmm. trying to think, what's the way? Like he seems to like me, but I've seen them him flip out at other people. Mm. On the term of the turn of the die. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And um, I I know what I love about the gentleman with thistle down hair, aside from his excellent name, is that how magical he is. It feels like there's magic in literally everything he does. You know, he can whisk you around um, the countryside on a whim. He can make the trees listen to him when he sings. He he can do all sorts of things, and it doesn't feel like he's doing magic. It feels like he's just tying his shoes. You know. He also doesn't ever seem to do magic in quite the same way that Jonathan or Noel does. Like, you get a sense that the way he interacts, his interface, I call it, with, like, the magical realms, is just fundamentally different. Here's another quote regarding those whisks around the countryside and also a little insight into how wonderful the gentleman with the Sudan hair is to be around. Um, this is about being teleported around the countryside. When he awoke... It was dawn, or something like dawn. The light was watery, dim, and incomparably sad. Vast, grey, gloomy hills rose up all around them, and between the hills there was a wide expanse of black bog. Stephen had never seen a landscape so calculated to reduce the onlooker to utter despair in an instant. This is one of your kingdoms, I suppose, sir, he said. My kingdoms, replied the gentleman in surprise. Oh no, this is Scotland. That's that's straight up just a brutal line. And we've determined something about Susanna Clark. Maybe she's from the north, but she is not from Scotland. I I appreciate I, I do you know what no, I do appreciate the uh No, I can't say that, that's just making it sound like I'm anti Scottish. Um, I've You're been to Scotland, to it's a lovely Scots, place. The really stark that's the word, stark landscape. That's what I saw. An awful road layout in their cities. I well, I, I I can't speak to that, but I did have a um a wonderful hike along the Galloway National Park. It was it was beautiful. It was just a solo trip, me and my tent going round the locks. Brilliant, and I had a lovely time. Now, Duncan, you said you want to hit upon the ending, so I and I won't deny you. I don't think we should give away the whole ending because I don't know about you, Duncan, but. For me, I when the first time I read the book through, I had a very different experience from the latest reading because I just couldn't comprehend how is Susanna Clarke going to grab all these different threads and weave them together? You know, they're so separated. Were you in the same boat? Oh, completely. I had a moment when I was sat in my mum's kitchen having a cup of tea, as we do, and trying to explain the book to her because I'd already told her how I didn't like the opening. And one of the things was, is I just didn't have faith when I started this book that some of the things that Susanna Clark was telling me weren't just pointless fluff. I was like, how could this possibly come back later? Why is this in here? And that just made that beautiful moment where she actually started to take those threads and weave out the tapestry. Just so much more satisfying and impressive. Like, I genuinely, I feel bad because I, essentially I doubted. I doubted Susanna Clark could bring it together at the end. And I was wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. I have to say, it's the one thing that on the reread, 
Well, not the one thing. Uh, it's the one thing. It's, it's one of the two things on the reread, which is like, it's not as satisfying as the first time. Because you don't have this sense of, oh my god, you did it. I can't believe it. Like the same thing I felt about Red Sister by Mark Lawrence, which is not as good a book as this. But it had, very complimentary it made to itself, It makes itself better by the way it wraps together so many things that seem disparate. And not receiving that this time and it just being sort of played out in what to me was a predictable manner now, it's not as good. It's not as good. The rest of a book is still very much enjoyable and it's still very good, but it's not exceptional the way it was the first time. There's one other thing which is a teeny bit more tedious the second time through, and I know for a fact, Duncan, that it's one that you're not too fond of either the first time through. Oh, are we talking about the Grey Seals? Yeah, we're talking about the Grey Seals. Okay. Would you like to explain who they are? Yes, so the Grey Seals, we mentioned earlier that Jonathan Strange, there's a moment when Arabella, his wife, has been whisked away to Fairyland, uh, but he believes her dead, and he meets Mm -hmm. young, I believe it's Flora Greystill, when he's travelling across Europe trying to forget his woes. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, these characters... We're in our last quarter of this novel, so about 200 pages to go. And I just feel it's the primary family that we meet is Mr. Greystill, his daughter, and Mr. Greystill's sister. I think yeah. often it's just the aunt for a lot of it. And we just get a lot of information about these characters that I really didn't feel like I needed or I was even really mm. prepared to take in at that late stage. You know when you're reading a book and it's like you know how long this has to run. Like, it's there. You're, you're holding the page. You can see the page count. Yeah. And you're like, well, clearly, this is late in the game. This I, can't be I, that I, significant I, if you're only going to bring it in I now. have to assume that some of it is that Susanna Clarke knows that it takes a long time to travel back and forth between Italy and the UK. And she felt like she had to fill in the spaces in between Jonathan's, like, various messages back to the UK after he goes mad um you know and he has to and and she has to fill out the page up with something because i have to say i did enjoy uh papa Gracie's conversation with lord byron who's a very welcome addition to this book by the way like lord byron is like a delight oh. alongside wellington he was fantastic referencing i say reference i don't know historical context I... yeah so it's real fiction what are we reading again? I mean, he. I mean, it is a reference. It's a reference. It's a literary reference. You know, like they make a joke about whatever Byron's big poem about a wizard was. I've never read it. It's like really long. But he's quizzing strange. There's another good reference, this. though, isn't there? Abs- yeah. There's two other characters that we get loser to. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Shelleys make an appearance. Yeah, the Shelleys exactly. You know, like Jonathan Strange just so happens to be in Geneva at the exact same time as the Shelleys to take part in one of the most important hit events in the history of literature, the invention of science fiction. Oh, no, but the thing is, they, they don't hit that note. They He asked them, it's like, and I didn't fully get, I didn't get this. He's like, yeah, they mm. kept bugging me about vampires. Exactly. And uh, so do you, Duncan, you and I, we discussed this in the last section of recording. And the reason I pointed out that this is really fun, it's really sort of, uh, sort of a like a faint, you know, that, that she makes towards you because you hear about the fact that he's there on the night, almost, that they have this, um, that this, this conversation about horror stories that eventually leads Mary Shelley to conceive of and then create Frankenstein of, of the modern Prometheus. But she doesn't give you that. Instead, he makes this final note in the chapter that 
they've a very curious impression of wizards, they kept asking me about vampires. And that's because one of the other guests at the, um, one of the other guests at the party is another author whose name I, I always forget, but he wrote a book called The Vampire, spelled with a Y, um, as his, like, version of the horror story. That's not the horror story that he came up with, and the horror story which Mary Shelley came up with would eventually become Frankenstein. And this is, like, a really seminal work of, of horror literature, not because of its own qualities, but because it eventually gave birth to Dracula. It's one of the chief inspirations. I think what this book did, uh, that I never appreciated, is how close some of the dates of things are. Because I really appreciate that, as far as I can tell, despite the fact that magic's now in this world, things like Waterloo and this yeah. event of the Shelleys also happen on the same date. Yeah, because like, it's, butterfly it's, it's wings interesting. Effect, sod it. You can no, have full-blown magic and certain things are going to be hit. It's true. Waterloo was not delayed by the fact that Jonathan Strange temporarily moved the city of Brussels to America. That is not slowed down in any way. This is like a, a destiny is rock solid in this universe. Nothing can prevent the passage of time following its set path. Right. Uh, so that's really great. Back to the great mm -hmm. steals. A bit dull, a bit late. There's yes. another point here, which I also thought was quite a late, uh, I don't know, theme to be bringing to the book. Um, and that's the idea of madness. And that the mad have a greater connection to the fae. There's something that's just I wouldn't strange. Agree that it's, I would not agree that it's late. I think it is very well set up in his first meeting with King George. And even before that, the idea that madness is like important in a way of talking to fairies. Because your mind is more like a fairy's when you're mad. But go ahead. I think you would appreciate that more in a reread. But carry on. My problem is, uh, and I know this book was written... In 2004, so it's set in the 1800s. So our ideas around madness and mental health have come a long way since 2004, and certainly sure. an awful long way since when this book was written. But I did take a little issue with the idea that um, Strange is like, "How do I become mad?" And he goes, "Well, I'll go and meet a mad woman." Mm -hmm. And he meets her, and he turns her into a cat, indeed, and eats a dead mouse, indeed, yes. I, I'm very thankful that I misremembered this book because my recollection was very much that he um, killed an old woman, turned her into a mouse, and then ate her. And that's not what happened. He turned her into a cat. And personally, I think he was happy as a cat. I can accept that reading. And great. Uh, I'm so glad we're on the same page. No murder, just weird diet. And then he turns the mouse into a potion and he drinks it and it makes him mad. And now, so this is where I was having a bit of an issue because, you know, I'm having all these ideas about, oh, you know, how we can look at mental health. So you took a man as something you can just drink. Uh, but then it did hit me a little bit. I thought, well, maybe this idea of madness is just how Strange um, thinks about this issue. Well, we know mm. it's a it's a text. It's like an in the universe text we're reading. This is That's an right, account exactly. this is, of Strange and All. Not even, it's, not, it's an account of Strange and All written by a fictionalized version of Susanna Clarke. That's quite explicit in the way she uses the I pronoun in very particular parts of the book. So I kind of got around this. This is me doing a bit of mental gymnastics to be like, no, it's okay. By kind of viewing it, this potion that he drinks, it's more like a psychedelic drug. It's like, ayahuasca. Bless you. You know what ayahuasca? I'm an innocent, innocent man. All right. Ayahuasca is like a South American drug which gives you like 
crazy hallucinations. I'm not talking about, like, LSD. It's more similar to, like, magic mushrooms, where, like, you go on, like, a spiritual journey. People, like, believe they've had conversations with the moon, you know? It's, like, that sort of drug. Often made by grinding up mites? Um, I think particular plants. So, no. Sounds but more reasonable. Yes. But, but, but you're right, this... It, it is quite psychedelic. It's not like um, actual madness. He's not hearing voices. He's not having mood spirals. He hasn't gone bipolar. He believes that there are candles inside people's heads and they should be careful that they don't go out. Exactly. I think this is a nice way to say it's kind of sidestepping sort of the wider mental health issue, which, to be honest, if she attempted to tackle that in the 150 pages she had left, mm-hmm. I genuinely think even that would be too much for her. So yeah. I think it's nicely handled. There's just enough leeway in the intertext kind of narrator and the actual structure of what's happening and the actual effects it has on Strange for me to go, okay, you're calling it madness, but I can there's choose also, to see it another way. There's also another strong, strong part about reading Duncan because one of the characters that sympathizes with him and says, you know, oh, I actually kind of relate to this is Lord Byron. And Lord Byron and along with Percy Shelley was doing a lot of drugs, you know? I have heard this, yes. Yes. So maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's something to it. Uh, it's great when your, like, scandalous lifestyle is still talked about over 200 years later. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, he would have been, like... I People point out that he's, like, the original, like, guy in the tabloids. He also could have been, like, I don't know, the first person to get kicked off Twitter. Oh, Sometimes authors are more interesting than their works. Maybe that's too much to say. I'll take that back. That is... No, that's definitely true, because some people aren't good writers. (laughs) True. To technically, I reckon most of humanity is more interesting as individuals than anything they've written. That's... You know what, Duncan? You're probably onto something there. You're probably onto something there. Ah. Duncan, this book... It's it's a good book, isn't it? And I feel like we've... And much like... Strange and oral, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. I really can't stress enough to really experience the magic of this and the excellent characters and the bizarre side tangents. Like, the story of how Jonathan Strange's father dies is so unnecessary and so excellent. It's funny, it goes in these really unexpected directions, and when you finish reading it, you're like, why the fuck did I just read that? Like, that wasn't relevant to the book at all. But it's phenomenal. I had a very similar experience. And I think the message I want to put out there uh, to people who haven't already read the book is when you pick it up, I really recommend you do pick it up, bear with. Because yes. I was there for the first quarter of this book. Yes. I was there thinking to myself, if this wasn't for book club, if this wasn't to chat with Geordie, mm-hmm. I would have stopped. And I have to say, I think Duncan's wrong. Like, the first 200 pages, sure. Like, it's a bit slow, but it is enjoyable. There's a lot of fun stuff in there if you just sort of accept that I'm not reading a fantasy adventure. I'm reading the fantasy version of Jane Austen or something by... Oh, Alexandre Dumas. It's like you have to put yourself in the era because she really has captured that sense of the era. And also, we didn't get to talk about Wellington and like the Wellington and the Peninsula Wars are like actually really exciting bits. No, absolutely. That's the best bit of the novel and 10 out of 10 and it's a shame we didn't get to talk about that. Yeah. But what are you going to do? We can't have this podcast be too long. So just want to emphasise, 
even though I did not like that bit, and I would actually describe it as not like. Okay. Well. I ended up loving it by the end, and I'm glad right. I, I read it. So thumbs up. And do you know, there's some fantasy series out You're there. You're welcome, Duncan. Uh, there's some fantasies out there, Geordie. Uh, I'm looking at such as maybe Mazalan, Book of the Fallen, or Wheel of Time, mm. where you have to read, I'd say, entire 1,000-page novels before the series gets good. Uh, the it's fact so that strange. strange. You keep novel. telling me this, and I don't understand how people read them. But then again, I also, like, I love Star Trek, and boy, is season one of Star Trek The Next Generation not very good. I know, but at least with that one, you can easily skip it. There is nothing to lose by not watching season one of Next Generation. That's almost true. That's almost true. You should watch the first episode. Anyway, anyway, you gotta know who Q so, is. Anyway, <laughs> Duncan. My turn, Geordie. It's my turn. So, Duncan, because of a bit of a recording screw up on my end, I have pushed us back a couple of days, which means that this episode is actually going to be released in February instead of January, which means that we did miss an entire month. And I know hey. we were only going to record one book in that month, but it's more than a month now. And I'm it was genuinely our vacation embarrassed by month. that. We're hitting back with season two, people. Yeah. Yeah. But that being said, I think we should now propose, like, I'm going to introduce a new rule to the the podcast and to the book club, and that is punishment. We're locked in now. We're committed to this podcast. And I feel like if we don't hold up our end of a bargain and we don't finish our books in time, there needs to be a punishment. I think at any time one of us fails to read a book, or now in this case, makes us miss recording an episode, I think that the other person should get a token. And that token can be used to make the other person read the sequel to one of our books. I'm reading this like a f- contract here, and like, where could this bite me in the ass? It could bite you in the ass very much if you don't finish a book, but you just have to finish the book. I will enter this game alright pens All right. out dotted line slip no no you have to slit your palm we have to seal this in blood yeah one sec I, just, I don't like using the fine seal for this type of business oh, sure absolutely find the nice rusty one in the back of the drawer as right, always ready? ready ow that was stupid of us <laughs> anyway yes so Duncan it's time for your pick Okay, Geordie. So I mentioned at the end of last season, our New Year's look back, Mm, that I want to be a little bit more diverse. I want to be looking at books and literature across the decades, Mm. you know, take it right back to the 1940s and kind of get a bit more of a widespread in what we read. So you're talking about 1940s onwards? Is that your plan? That is my plan. Interesting. Gives me 80 decades. We'll see. We'll see how it pans out. To be fair, we have already covered the 30s. Have we? Conan, dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's literally our first episode. So, in that spirit, I picked something that I think redefines for me the decade that it came out. Or the very least, the decade that the film adaption came out. Interesting. So, Geordie, you know how this book sometimes feels like it's going on and on. It's never going to end. Yes, I think that's true. Especially some of the Greysteel chapters. Well, that got me thinking and made me want to read The Never-Ending Story. Ah, okay, the 1980s. Oh, yes, hopefully. Maybe the book came out in the 70s, I haven't checked. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I was thinking, like, I don't think... As soon as you said the book title, I was like, I don't think the 
those books came out of the same decade. I'm pretty sure they are quite separated, but, 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 um, this is, this is good because I've never seen a movie. I only have vague ideas about what it's about. I know that it has good puppets. I know there's a swamp. There's a boy. Um, it's a, it's, I think it's an isekai. I don't think it is, but okay. All right. That'll um, be our next debate. I have debate. seen the movie. I'm a big fan of it, and I'm okay. really excited to finally read the book for the first time. All right. I, in that case, I will be the one to have only read the book, and I'll, I'll watch the movie after the episode. How about that? I mean, that sounds healthy. Yeah, so that way I can come in with one perspective and you have another. That's almost what our podcast is about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, people. Thank you for kicking off 2023 with us. Uh, please keep coming to the book club. If you have any thoughts and opinions on any of the books that we read, if you want to tell us your thoughts on Stranger Noel, are you a Noralite or a Strangeite? That's a very There's only one right be, answer, yeah, but I mean, I'd like I to hear what you think. Be a Noralite, but carry on. Then please reach out to us at isitsjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com. Send an email in there. Or, best way to do it, probably more direct, go and follow us on Instagram and message us there, is this a fantasy podcast, where you'll get regular posts for when our podcast has gone out although mm-hmm. you should just be following us on the relevant platforms uh, but you also get a uh, post in between book hauls reviews on anything else that we've been reading uh the lot when i can remember to update it hooray you occasionally forget i might actually send you a review to, for me to put on there duncan that would be nice um I should, I should carry a bit more water for the instagram to put that in awesome okay all right man <laughs> what a pleasure to record good to be back isn't it as always thank you everyone coming to our book club Join us in two weeks' time mm-hmm. for more tea and biscuits and polite conversation about the never-ending story. I think your song goes, never-ending story. Shh, 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 we'll get copyrighted. Ah, ah!